0: Good morning, everyone. Again, and um, and wonderful um, blessing to see you, and, and a privilege to be able to preach and to and to bring the word of God forward. We've uh, set ourselves a task to have a look at a particular doctrine within the Bible over six messages, and the the topic is heaven and hell. And the first three were dealing with heaven, and wonderful topic to be able to talk about. You know, to be able to talk about the characteristics of heaven, the nature of heaven, to discover that it's God's dwelling place, to discover that 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 is a future home um, for those who who desire the Lord and love the Lord, to see its detail, and <laughs> in three messages. It's, it's impossible to be able to do the whole doctrine of heaven, the understanding of heaven any justice. Equally, it's difficult to deal with that transition that we spoke about last week or the last time that I, that I preached and that was on, on the entire topic of death. It's a topic that affects every single one of us and has affected every single one of us in one way or another with a loved one that might have passed away. uh, But understanding what death is is was a fascinating study in and of itself, discovering that even the scientific community, the philosophers themselves, don't even comprehend what life is. Yet they all seem to be united in understanding what death is. They understand that death is an absence of life and only that which is living can die. So their limitation with respect to life doesn't seem to take away their understanding with regards to death. They understood that. But we understand that death is a transition as far as the scriptures are concerned. It, it, it slips us from mortality to immortality. And that is a topic of great consternation among the world today, especially a materialistic world that believes that there is no afterlife, that there is no immortality, that there is no life after death in spite of the fact that every single culture in the world throughout history up until now has always identified and recognised that there was indeed an afterlife. And this comes completely in sync with the denial of God. And the denial of God seems to come directly in sync with our desire to do whatever it is that we want to do without any complication, without any uh, accountability. But together with that, we also lose purpose, because if we are simply materialistic and we come, you know, from the goo through the zoo to you, then there is no purpose for our lives. There is no reason for our existence. There's no, there's no purpose. And now we have to live in a world dealing with the consequences of life without purpose. Self-esteem classes seem to be something that's, um, that's required for all children, because well, there's real value in your life, even though you're not here for any reason. You know. So we need to deal with that There's consequences. But the consequence that the atheistic community and, and, and people who reject the entire understanding of the reality of God is a design not to be accountable. The difficulty with that, however, is it doesn't take away the fact that they are going to be accountable. You you can believe what you choose to believe. And there's no problems with that. You can believe whatever it is you want to believe, but you can't equate that to truth. Truth is a stubborn thing. It doesn't go away based on whatever it is that we want to believe or don't want to believe. And we need to be willing to submit ourselves to that which is true. Now we find ourselves to the most difficult portion of all, and that is what the Bible teaches with respect to hell. It's It's a tough one, this one, because... Last time when I spoke about death, even though that's a negative a negative aspect of of life, my purpose was to encourage you, you know and and I, and I think to one degree or another I, I would have encouraged you through that message. It's a very, very difficult to encourage you with an understanding of the concept of hell. Um, those of you who know the Lord, those of you who are saved from this uh, have no fear with respect to it, but it doesn't take away the burden that we have within our hearts for loved ones and also those who have already passed. My, my mother died a number of years ago, probably about 10, 12 years ago, and I have no idea where she is. I have the slightest hope that she is in heaven, but it's only a slight hope, and it was based on the testimony that she told me when, with regards to when she was 16 years of age. But she lived her life in denial of God most of the time. She indulged the New Age and she was heavily involved in the New Age. She was involved in necromancy and all that sort of thing as well. So, But as a result of that, I'd also seen trouble in her life, it was almost like God chastising her throughout her days until finally her days came to an end. And I, I pleaded with her and I begged her to believe the gospel and I don't know whether she did or not. I don't know whether it was something that she did when she was young. Um, so it, this affects all of us, guys. This affects all of us. But we can't step away from the fact of it. It's, if, there is, if you're walking along a path and there is a tremendous pit in front of you and it's covered over by a light covering, you want to know that it's there. You don't want to ignorantly walk over it and find yourself cast into it. So it's either there or it's not there and it has no bearing on whether we want to believe it's there or not. Does that make sense? And this is exactly the same with respect to this. So our focus today is what does the Bible teach about the entire concept of hell? And um, I've got to tell you, the first time I ever actually mentioned hell, I was in a charismatic church. I was there for 10 years. I never even heard the word while I was there. And as soon as I mentioned it, there were gasps within this Christian community. You know, <gasps> he said the H word, you know. It's as if they just don't want to see it. They don't want to recognise it's there. I'm going to open a word of prayer and we're going to get into our, uh, the message this morning. Heavenly Father, I need you, dear Lord, at this time. I, I need you. I need you desperately. I need you to be able to work through this message, I need you to be able to work in the hearts of those who would hear it, that they would have a burden, an increasing desperate burden for the lost. And if they themselves, dear Lord, don't know you, then they would have an increasing fear with respect to this end, but most importantly, dear Lord, that they will realise the wonderful solution that is found in Christ and faith in Christ. So I ask and pray, dear Lord, that you would give to each one of us a uh, a patient ear to hear, and a desire and a humble heart to believe the truth of what the Scriptures teach. And I ask you, dear Lord, that it would impact us in ways that we are yet to even comprehend. Be with me, dear Lord, this morning as the Word of God is preached, and be with the hearers that they may have ears to hear and hearts desiring to understand. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The scripture in Luke. 16 19 to 31 what we just read it's an account given by the lord jesus christ and it has within it several understandings of the nature of hell i'm not going to go into all of them this morning we're only going to be touching three aspects and we want to be talking about that in detail but one of the items that we recognize within that account is that the rich man is fully aware of where he is he is Uh, completely conscious that he is in hell, even though his body is buried in a grave. The other is that the man is aware that he is in fiery torment and the man is not in disagreement to the state in which he finds himself. That's also interesting to notice. He doesn't speak about him being unfairly cast into that place, though he does and seems to be surprised that he's fallen in there so suddenly and so quickly. I'm sure he made his plans well. Uh, but death had taken him before he was ready. The man requests also no company of family. Did you notice that? No company of family. Matter of fact, at a time when he is completely isolated and alone, and contrary to popular belief, there is no description in hell of in, anybody in there partying. All right? The Bible actually teaches the exact opposite of that. It speaks about it as absolute solitary confinement within hell and absolute and complete utter darkness so there is no picture of communion or fellowship it's the exact opposite of heaven but he doesn't even desire family to come in there there's a recognition of that Um, he would want them to be warned I have five brethren please if someone just came out from the dead and would speak to them and warn them of this place that they would not be thrown in here Abraham tells them tells him they have the word of God let them read it. The Bible, the, man, the man's name is also not mentioned. That's fascinating. Although there has been people in the Demas, is his name according to Roman Catholicism, but it's not found in the scriptures at all. Um, the man is not named and that is interesting in itself because it perfectly identifies the scriptural teaching that the names of the wicked shall rot in Proverbs ten seven. It also identifies that all that was here shall not be remembered nor come to mind in the future kingdom, Isaiah 65:17. The people in hell will be forgotten. They will be forgotten. There, there's a lot more and many more identity, identities within here. There are only three that I want to be bringing out, three pictures of hell that also seem to reference five characteristics of other doctrines, the doctrine of of God, the doctrine of sin, that of the atonement, salvation and of heaven. These three that we're dealing with this morning which is namely punishment, destruction and banishment, each one of those three are also represented in those other five elements that we'll talk about right at the end as I close the message, that of God, sin, the atonement, salvation and heaven and it's an incredible link that you're going to discover here this morning. But first and foremost, punishment. Hell is a place of eternal punishment. In your newsletters, in the sermon notes, you have all the scripture references that I'm going to be dealing with today. Some that I'm going to allude to are also there. They are all in order with regards to the sermon. How the sermon flows will be exactly where those scripture references are found for you to be able to check and see for yourselves those items that I speak about so many errors uh, have been taught over the years respecting the biblical doctrine of hell that it's impossible to know where to begin, where we are to be able to consider these things. It's impossible to be able to do that. Hell itself as a doctrine is the most hated doctrine in the world and, and we can understand why. As Christians, this is the thing we've got to understand here. As Christians, we hate it. I don't think there's anybody alive today that looks at this particular thing and is happy for anybody to go there. Once you have an understanding of what hell is, the more you study it, the more grieved and sickened you are of the nature of this thing. But when you come to understand that hell wasn't created for man to begin with, you start to begin an understanding. When you start to understand what God had done to prevent man from ending up there, you also start to understand that this isn't an evil individual that's put hell in its place. Hell was created for the devil and his angels, not for mankind. But so many are the errors. I can't deal with them. I, know I want to just take note of an anecdote. It was a picture of a lowly bank teller who she's given a range of genuine bank notes to study and to be aware of forgeries, to be aware of errors. And um, she notices that the notes that she's been given are all legal tender. They're all perfect. None of them are an example of forgeries. She raises an objection to her employer, telling him that he should supply her with all the forgeries that are known so she can study them and that she might be able to identify them when when, when, when they come across her path. Her employer said to her, Madam... Study and learn the true article. Turn it over and over in great consideration. And when one of a potential infinite number of forgeries come, you will know which is the true and which is the false. And so it is for us, beloved. Read the Bible. Read your Bible. The clarity of the doctrines that are found that we talk about are in the Bible. And whenever an error comes across, you'll be able to identify it very, very quickly. You don't have to study the errors study the Bible, look at the Word of God and you'll be able to compare one with the other. It's that truth that we hold on to. Jesus warned more about hell than any other individual in the Bible. The doctrine of hell appears 54 times, the word hell appears 54 times in the Scriptures, 31 times in the Old Testament, 16 times Jesus speaks about it. Jesus himself speaks about it, um, and he addresses it in the most glaring, clarifying detail, more than anybody else in the Scriptures. And fair enough, he's the one that came to save mankind from it. It's fair that he should be the one who warns the most of it. Jesus, first in Matthew chapter 25, worth turning there, turn to Matthew chapter 25, Jesus first gives the account of a king who praises those who have uh, fed and quenched the thirst of and took in and clothed his brethren. And he says that this was, what was done to them was effectively also done to him. Um, Matthew 25. And the text we're going to be looking at is from verse 40. Because the next portion we've got an interesting testimony as to the purpose and the creation of hell, and you'll see that in there. So he's, he basically said, That which was done to them, you've also done to me. And in verse forty, and the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, you have done it unto me. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was an hungered, and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you took me not in. Naked, and you clothed me not. Sick, and in prison, and you visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, whence are we the hungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them. Saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. And These shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. There's several items that are worthy of note, and only a couple of them I'll give to you here. The first is that the place of hell was a place of everlasting punishment for Satan and his angels for whom it was originally created. And the second is that the wicked will share in that end. The devils know that their final place is in hell, but the scriptures plainly teach that their time has not yet come. The book of Job, in the book of Job, we see Satan going to and fro from on the earth. He was walking up and down in the earth and he would have counsel with God in the book of Job. So he was clearly not already in hell. And we see that in Job's chapter 1 and 2. We see also that when the Lord Jesus came to cast out the devils from individuals who were possessed of them, that they would cry out to him. They identified him as the Son of God, but then they'd say, Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? An understanding even of the devils in this world that recognise that the time is not yet, but it is coming. The final end of Satan is not yet. Hell was originally created for the devil and his angels. They being already... Now, this is a really important point, and I want you to consider this. They being already in an immortal state cannot now change from fallen to unfallen. They made their choice in an immortal state and they can no longer change that decision. So the angels that fell with the devil, and apparently there's a third of them, A third of the angels that were created fell with the devil. They will have their place in hell. Their state is permanent. It cannot be changed. There is no gospel ever preached to the devil. They all made a conscious choice. The fall of man, however, through to sin, places him in the same condemnation as the devil. But, but... God had created this entire universe for the existence of mankind, right? This entire universe, I've said this many times before, man is not the pinnacle of God's creation. Man is the purpose for God's creation. God created man to have perfect harmony and fellowship with God, to enjoy him forever, to enjoy the fellowship that he already had amongst himself. And he created mankind for it. The angels in an immortal state made the choice to disobey and they fell. Man was fooled and also fell. But man had the blessing of death. The blessing of death, pastor. The blessing of death. Man was now, man was created immortal. He wasn't created to die. We, We spoke of that last time. But because of sin, death came into the world. Now, man has his entire life to determine to serve the Lord or to forsake him. That choice that he makes for his entire life will therefore determine his end. Does that make sense? We speak about a second chance, we speak about the idea of a post mortem second chance. Another chance after death that man might have. This is the idea of universalism, that all people eventually will end up in heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. There is no such thing as purgatory. Purgatory doesn't find itself in scripture. It was an invented doctrine based on a pagan belief system. Man has a second chance because he is allowed to die. Being created immortal, he wasn't already cast into that state. There's other issues involved. Man has children and so on and so forth, right? The angels were created in full number right at the beginning. That's not the case of man. Man was created to continue to propagate. Okay, so there's other issues involved there as well, which I won't go into. But the fact of the matter is, man has his entire life to choose life. His entire life to choose life. Immortality was stripped from him, so his first choice to turn away from God might have opportunity to be changed before he slipped into that immortal state through death. So there is reason for man to be able to continue to live and then ultimately die, and it is a reason of grace. God is giving us every single moment of every single day, of every single week, of every single month that we are alive to turn to recognise and identify who the Lord is. We can talk about all the other questions with regards to what about the pygmy in the deepest, darkest Africa and how does he hear the gospel. Well, the Bible says that all men know the reality of God and there's more than more answers that I can provide for that, even answers that are going on right now in Islamic nations in the world. Incredible how God is appearing to people in an incredible way, even through their dreams. There's so many different things that are going on. But God does not will that any should perish, but all would come to repentance. And all would come to the acknowledge of who he is. Hell is indeed a place of eternal punishment. Satan and all the wicked have not desired the Lord. They shall have their end there. So, four really quick considerations with respect to this. Hell is a place of, firstly, deserved punishment. It is retributive. It is the penal consequence of sin. It is not designed to reform it is not designed in any way to change an individual. It is a penalty that was due. It was the wages, the Bible says, due for their sin. And all these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal, Matthew 25:46. Daniel wrote in the book of Daniel, chapter 12, verse 2, speaking of their end and saying, In Many of them that sleep, sleep in the dust of the earth, shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. The second part of that is that hell is a place of eternal punishment. We can see through the plain reading of those two passages alone that the punishment of hell is eternal. It's everlasting. This we're going to be revisiting as we go on because the theme continues in its consistency through the Scriptures. But there is no hope in hell. There is no end, even though it seems to remain time-bound. That's an interesting consideration in itself. If every grain of sand in an hourglass was itself an hourglass, you would still have hope of coming to the end of it. If all the grains of sand and all the beaches of the world were an hourglass filled with sand, you would yet have hope of an end. But not so in hell. Hell is an eternal punishment. Thirdly, hell is a place of conscious punishment. We can see that in the account of the rich man, that he was perfectly aware of his torment. His temporal desire to cool a parched tongue was his conscious desire. If it were ever to be considered a place of unconscious torment, it could never be considered a place to fear. But Jesus said, But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. This is Jesus speaking. There's no need to fear a torment to which one is unconscious of suffering. Hell is a place of conscious punishment. And lastly, for this point, hell is a place of suffering. Those in hell suffer intense and excruciating pain, emotional, spiritual, physical. So great is the pain that Jesus referred to it as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 8, 12, 22, 13... 24:51, 25:30, Luke chapter 13, verse 28. Worst of all, the sufferings never end, and there is no relief. You cannot voluntarily exit hell as you do life. Writing of those who worship the beast in Revelation 14:11, the apostle wrote, "And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up for ever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night." who worship the beast in his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. This is speaking about a time yet future, a speaking of the mark of the beast that we've known about and talked about and this is an inevitable end for all those who have received him. It's interesting though that there's a reference to day and night identified in hell, even though hell is a place of utter darkness. That's not inconsistent with scripture. We see this in the beginning when the creation happened we see that evening and morning was in the first day. The sun was not created until I think it was day three. Yeah, about day three. So there was no light then. Well, light was the Lord. The Lord is the one in light. There's an intensity of suffering. The sorrow, the remorse seems to be in line with the wickedness of the life lived. It's a just recompense of their evil in the eyes of God. I'll turn your Bibles to Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, one of the epistles of Paul, go past the gospel accounts, the book of Romans, Corinthians books, and you'll find Thessalonians there. Looking at the second book, first chapter of the second book. Verses that we'll read there, verses 5 to 10. Second Thessalonians, chapter 1. We'll read from verses 5 to 10 as we conclude this first point. Paul speaks, which is the manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. Seeing It is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. It's it's interesting because as you go through all of these, you still see the same theme that I'm dealing with today. The punishment, the destruction and the banishment, they all seem to fit in so many of these passages and that's why we're bringing those ones to the fore. So hell is a place of eternal punishment is deserved punishment, it's eternal, it's conscious and it is internal suffering. The second point this morning is with respect to destruction. Hell is the place of eternal destruction. The rich man in our text is literally destroyed in hell. Paul writes in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Death is a picture of destruction. Death is, in fact, destruction. Revelation 20, verse 14, death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 21, 7 to 8 says, He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers and idolaters and all liars... Shall have their place in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. It's interesting, we've spoken about this before. But those who are born again have new life, they're changed, they're transformed. There's a changed life, there's something that's happened. We, we were given life, and we've been given new life in Christ because of our faith. It's a, it's, a, it's a strange thing. We, I'd never expected it, you know, but it's the Spirit of God that comes in and dwells us and we're changed. We're given new life, new hope, new joys, new desires. Everything changes. Everything changes. And I've, and I've seen witness of individuals here within this church whose lives have been completely transformed and changed. And I can name you, but there's quite a few of you, you know. And you know it. You know it yourselves. You speak about it so often. This was my life before and this is my life now. It's changed. It's changed, completely changed because I have hope now I've got new life. And in these circles we often speak about the Christian dies once but lives twice. We're alive now, then we die, then we are resurrected to life. Not so those who don't know the Lord, not so those who hate the Lord. They live once, die twice. And this is the second death. This is the second death, the one in the lake of fire. The destruction in hell is spoken of specifically by Jesus Christ in the most famous scripture verse in the world, John 3.16. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Should not perish. And the counter to that is, but have everlasting life. There are some who believe in the idea commonly called annihilationism, the idea that once we die, we are annihilated, that destruction referred to in the Bible speaks of people ceasing to exist. This belief is commonly held by most atheists and is in line with their material worldview. Fair enough. It's It's their perfect preference to escape accountability in life. They don't want to be accountable in this life. That's the most... That's the most dreadful consideration that they have within their minds. We've spoken about this before. How I used to have people coming up to me saying, you know, you Christians, you know, you're know, you stuck having to do this and this and this, but you know, we're free. I'm like, oh, free? What do you mean free? Free for what? They go, well, you know, we're free. No, no, no. I, we're all free. We're all free to do good. All of us are free to do good. What are you talking about? Oh, no, they want the freedom to do evil. They want the freedom to do evil not good. That's what they refer to as free. The Bible refers to them as servants of sin and they do not want to have accountability in this life. They despise the idea of being held to account for a godless life and they've got motives for the world to have no meaning, no purpose, no God. Aldous Huxley, the famous atheist philosopher, wrote this, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning consequently assumed that it had none, and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. For myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. When you go on and you read the account in that chapter, he's speaking about sexual liberation. He can do whatever he wants sexually. that's what he's referring to. Thomas Nagel, the professor of philosophy, wrote this. He said, I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. He wrote that in his book The Last Word by Thomas Nagel, Oxford University Press, 1997. Individuals like this have not the love of the truth. They don't desire the truth that they might be saved. They choose rather to believe a lie because that is their preference. But truth, as I said before, is a stubborn thing and will have its way in spite of them. Turn, you were in Second Thessalonians. Go to chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul wrote here of the return of Christ and how he will destroy Satan with the brightness of his coming. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 9 and 10, he writes this, Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and and signs and lying wonders, with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. Beloved, it doesn't, believing that the pit doesn't exist doesn't take away that it's still there. If you walk across it, you are going to fall therein. You know, we're putting signs around the pit, put barricades around the pit. You know, no, 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 I still don't believe that there's a pit there. I still don't believe that there's a problem there. I still want to walk over it. But it's not going to bear you up. You're not going to be held up. You know, gravity itself is going to pull you down. Your own weight is going to precipitate your fall. Do you understand? You're going to fall into the pits. No, I don't believe it's there. I don't believe it's there. Rather than actually searching and having a desire to know the truth, we want to put our fingers in our ears and cover our eyes and say, no, 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 no. I want to continue to believe what I want to believe. And that was me. It was me, it was where I was at, you know. I was in my 20s and I was having a whale of a time, you know. And I was, in, I was a teenager, 17 years of age when I first heard the gospel and then I lived a debauched life from that point up until I finally got saved by the age of 29, you know. I did not, but then I, I realised, what's the point? What's the point? What's the point of just wanting to believe whatever I want to believe? That doesn't make any sense, no, I've got to, I need to discover what the truth is. I need to know what the truth is. I mean, if I'm in trouble, then I need to know that I'm in trouble. And if I'm okay, I'd like to know that I'm okay. But I don't just want to believe that I'm okay when I know what my life has been like. I know what I've done. I've known my debauchery of sin. I've recognised the womanising and the drugs and all that sort of stuff. I knew that none of that was good, you know. How do I know it was good? How do I even have a conscious awareness that it was good? What in me told me that that was morally immoral? You know, I knew that it was wrong. New Testament scholar Douglas Moo writes with regards to this idea of the Bible speaking of destruction, and he gives an interesting understanding that this does, the Bible does not refer to destruction as annihilation. And this is the, this is the definition that he provides, and it's a really interesting one. He says that destruction in the Bible most often refers to the situation of a person or object that has lost the essence of its nature or function. I'll say that again. Destruction in the Bible refers to the situation of a person or object that has lost the essence of its nature or function. And that works perfectly well with respect to what the Bible speaks about, it respects to the desolation of a land. In Jeremiah 4.20, an attack upon a city in Isaiah 15.5, the poverty of the poor in Proverbs 10.15, the carrying away of the captivity of the Jews in Lamentations 3.48, death itself in 1 Corinthians 5.5. These all refer to destruction. They speak about destruction. you lost your essence of what you were originally created for. Theologian Christopher Morgan writes this, Destruction is a graphic picture showing that those in hell have failed to embrace the meaning of life and have wasted it. Trying to find life in themselves and in sin, they forfeit true life. Only ruin remains. Only ruin remains. Hell is a place of eternal destruction. And the third and the last of these elements is that hell is a place of eternal banishment. Turn back in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16 verses 24 to 25. the everlasting now. This is the permanent place of both men, one comforted with a place where God dwells and the other banished from his presence forever. There is today in China an ongoing and deliberate effort to ban all religions within that nation because it's against their atheistic philosophy. They have a Marxist philosophy and according to Karl Marx, theism in whatever frame, uh, religion in whatever frame, he referred to as the opiate of the people and didn't believe that that was right in a Marxist civilization. and China was exactly that. So China wants them separated from society. They want all religious believers essentially banished from the atheistic world view that China is trying to build. Interestingly, we're seeing laws at the moment being passed in the United States and consequently around the world that is aimed to prevent any Christian any individual that's persuaded by Christianity, anybody that has especially a, a faith in God or in the Bible, they're working at trying to prevent them from entering into government. They want them separated from government. They essentially want Christianity banished from anything that would govern the nation. Exact opposite of how it started, incidentally. Exact opposite of what caused their blessing to this day. We're having a look at nations around the world that are atheistic in their view or follow a false god and we see that they don't have... It's not a coincidence that they don't have the blessings that we've enjoyed under the original government that we had, which was one on faith. Funnily enough, though, as we consider all of these things, it doesn't take long to become a Christian before you find yourself even separated from people that were once friends. I see a lot of people nodding. You realise that. You see that. There is a desire not on our part to not spend time with people who don't know the Lord. It seems to be their natural tendency to want to draw away from you. There's there's something about you that reminds them of the God that they despise or the God that they do not want to believe in. They seem to naturally move away from you. You start getting less telephone calls, less invitations to, to 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 meet up or to go to parties or anything like that. You're seeing less and less of that, less conversations with them. They don't want to talk to you. They want to separate from you. They want you banished, essentially. Not all, not all. I've got... I've got atheistic friends that I, that I spend time with, agnostic more than atheistic, and, um, and I, I never, never waste a moment to be able to talk to them about, about the Lord. They tolerate me patiently, which is a wonderful blessing. But at the same time, they're also realising many of the things that I've said in the past is also coming to light, because the Bible is true. So I'm only speaking about what the Bible says, about what's coming, and they see what's coming, and it intrigues them. How did I know this? You know, There's no genius in my mind. It's, I've got a book. It tells me I've read the back of it, <laughs> sneakily. This is the state. This is the state. Those who desire God are effectively banished from those who do not. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is speaking about a number of different parables. He speaks of the sower that went forth to sow, he speaks of the tares sown among the wheat, he speaks about the kingdom of heaven. These are parables, and parables are parallels, okay? They are parallels of things that are fundamentally true. It's a story that's on the other side of it. He, he continues to speak about it as, as like and unto. These things are like. Matthew chapter 13 is where we're looking. But Jesus speaks about the kingdom of heaven is like unto, Matthew in 13 24. the kingdom of heaven is like thirteen thirty one. Sometimes Jesus just goes directly into the parable and says, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And he goes on, and he's gracious enough to explain what that parable means. In verse verse 37, Jesus explains the parable of the one who is the sower that goes forth to sow. And in verse 37, he answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, the good seed are the children of the kingdom of of heaven, of the... there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father, who hath ears to hear, let him hear. In verse 47, he gives another parable saying, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was full they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. It's very difficult not to see the clarity with which he speaks. Remember, the one part of it is the parable part. The one part of it is the parable. The next section of it is the explanation of the parable. The explanation of the parable needs to be accepted literally, not figuratively. The figurative part was the parable, okay? The allegorical part was the parable, but the explanation is literal. He's speaking about it literally. and that's, that's the normal plain reading of the text. And what you see here is a concept of separation, a concept of banishment, an understanding of eternal banishment. The wicked severed from among the just, the angels gathering out of the kingdom all that offend and do iniquity and in separating them from those who are the children of the kingdom. Some he gathered into barns, some he gathered into vessels to be with him. The others he cast away, even into a furnace of fire. Eternal separation from God is seen also in the Olivet Discourse, in Matthew chapter 25. Turn there, you can turn there. Matthew 25, this is the last of days. And in verse 41, just the one verse... Matthew 25, 41, Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, and these are the words that you don't want to hear. These are the words you don't want to hear. Matthew 25, 41, Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Depart from me, depart from me. When you hear these words, they are permanent. They are an eternal departure from Christ, banishment, never to be altered, eternal. Sadly and tragically, the same is said to many people who think they belong to Christ, but has never been born again. They think that they are saved. They think that they know Christ. They think that because they grew up in a Christian home, that they're automatically Christians. It just happens by osmosis. You know, they think that because they go to church on a regular basis that they're okay, they're all good. They think that because, you know, they mentally agree with something that they're also safe and yet we've got the most frightening passage in the entire Bible in Matthew chapter 7. And it's a simple passage and it's a passage that begins at verse 21 and it says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven that he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Verse 22 says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then in verse 23, those frightening words. Then will I confess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity depart from me there's there, there, I know that um, there's people who get offended when I when I really press them with regards to whether or not they know Christ and I don't I don't press them because I'm judging I press them because if they don't know Christ, there is an eternity to be considered. I don't want people to pretend that they're Christians. I don't want people to pretend that they think that they know the Lord because they had some weird experience. I want them to be able to analyse their life and see if there's a transformation, if there is a change. I want them to be able to question Do I know the Lord? Do I know Christ? Am I safe? And then once having been able to affirm that, then be confident that they're secured and they're kept forever by the Lord. He preserves them. He holds them. That which I committed unto him, he is faithful and just to keep until that day. He preserves you. You're not going to be preserved by your own good works. Your good works couldn't save you. They can't keep you, beloved. But you need to know whether you are the children of the kingdom of God. And there is a ways of knowing it. And don't be offended. If I press you on it, I'm not judging. It's not my interest. I, 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 you know, I'm trying to point out a failure in you. I've got more failures. I can write a bigger list of my failures than you can of yours, all right? I'm acutely aware of my own shortcomings. I've got no right to judge anyone for their, for their behaviours and, and, and stuff like that. My main concern is, do you know Christ? Are you born again? Do you know the Saviour? Have you believed the Gospel? I don't want you to hear, depart from me. I don't want you to hear that. When you hear that, it's over. It's finished. It's eternal banishment. Punishment stresses the active side of hell. But banishment shows the horror of eternal separation. Banishment is not one of fellowship with others banished. I want you to be aware of that. Banishment is not fellowship with others that are banished. You are banished from all fellowship, all and any. You are solitary and alone. Never does the Bible present fellowship in hell, but solitude and darkness, even outer darkness. Whereas heaven is identified by the light of Christ, hell is highlighted by its absence of light. People have asked me, how can there be fire in hell if there is no light? Does not fire illuminate hell? The simple answer is no. No, it does not. The fires of hell cannot be equated with the fires on earth. Remember, hell was created for the devil and his angels, not for mankind. Angels can walk over the fires of earth and not have one thing singed. The fires of hell are one that burn to the very soul. It burns the spirit and it is unquenchable it continues and it is ongoing and it never ends jesus referred to it three times saying the speaking about those torment in hell and the devils in hell will burn unto the souls where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched mark 9:44 mark 9:46 mark 9:48 they will have a body fit to purpose and the fit of the purpose is to endure the fires of hell for all eternity hell is perfect eternal solitude and perfect absence of light in the bible hell is everything that heaven is not the glory of heaven stands in diametrical contrast to hell even time even time i'm going to stand aside of the pulpit Mention me standing aside here when when I speak about this because I can't prove it. But I find it interesting that the consideration of all those who know the Lord that dwell with him where he dwells, he is the one who inhabits eternity. The references that we have to heaven give no indication of time. The Bible speaks eternity is outside of time. You understand that time is a created element. It's part of this creation. It's part of this universe. All right. When scientists speak about, about this universe, they speak about a, a time bound universe. They speak about the elements as material, space and time. Okay, time is a created element. You can change time. Time can be altered in different ways depending on the speed that you that you that you travel, when you travel in different parts of the world. Time seems to travel. You know, you can celebrate your birthday twice if you're on a plane fast enough, you know. So time changes, time is altered. Eternity is the habitation of God. We can't even conceive of, of a place without any time. The references that we have to heaven indicate no time, but not so in hell, not so in hell. In hell there is both day and night there. Day and night. There is evening and there is morning there. There is time indicated when Satan is cast into the lake of fire after a thousand years in Revelation chapter 20 verse 10 where the beast and the false prophet are. They were cast at the end of the tribulation into that lake of fire a thousand years later. Satan is cast into there and they are still there. I can't confirm it. Beloved, but it seems evident that hell is time-bound while heaven is in eternity. Again, complete distinction from heaven. Let me close. We've dealt with three fundamental elements in the place of hell and it's certainly presented in the Bible as a place and not a frame of mind or a state of heart or anything like that. Hell is literal, it's geographical, it's physical. It's set in contrast to heaven. We cannot, on the one hand, recognise the Bible plainly teaching that heaven is literal, eternal and glorious, while, because we despise the concept of hell, teach that it is allegorical, temporal and tolerable. We have seen hell as a place of punishment, destruction and banishment. None, not as, not as one and then the other and then the other. The three elements of hell are a unified Whole God does not first banish and then punish and then destroy. That's not how it's described in the scripture. It's described unilaterally. When Jesus preached his Olivet discourse in Matthew twenty-four, from Matthew 24, 45 to 25, 46, all three pictures of hell stood together, and they appear in the same passages. The wicked servant was cut asunder, then he was he was banished with the hypocrites, and his destruction is evident in his weeping and gnashing of teeth. The other wicked servant was buried, who buried the talent of gold, had the punishment of the confiscation of his goods, banished into outer darkness, and again, the destruction evident in the weeping and gnashing of teeth. But more than this, more than this, the three pictures of hell I mentioned earlier, I mentioned earlier, that they also picture the doctrines of God, of sin, of atonement, And salvation. Listen to this, just one last element to consider. Of God, hell as punishment depicts God as the judge who sentences the wicked. Of God, hell as destruction portrays God as the victor who defeats his enemies. Of God, hell as banishment sees God as the king who allows only his citizens into his kingdom. Speaking of sin, Hella's punishment recognises sin as a crime. Hella's destruction sees sin as spiritual death. Hella's banishment sees sin and and its alienation from God. With regards to the atonement, Hella's punishment sees Christ on the cross, taking the cup of God's wrath. Hella's destruction sees the death of Christ as an offering for sin. Hella's banishment sees Christ separated from God in that famous cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In salvation, we also see it. Hella's punishment awaits those not justified by faith. Hella's destruction awaits those who will not receive new life, new life in Christ. Hella's banishment awaits those who have not desired fellowship with Christ. Are you seeing these links? In each one of these doctrines, we're seeing the highlighted aspects of hell represented within them. And the last one, with respect to how it corresponds with heaven, hell as punishment stands opposed to heaven's reward. Hell as everlasting destruction counterpoints heaven's eternal life. Hell as banishment stands in complete contrast to the glorious communion of the saints in fellowship with God and the holy angels. It's completely opposite. Do you see it? This is the picture of hell. This is how the Bible portrays it. You have a choice to accept or to not to deny the truth of it. But all the efforts to deny hell by by many in the world refuses the salvation of their own souls. They do it against their own souls. Jesus died to save man from the penalty of sin. All who believe in their heart that Jesus died for their sin, that God rose him from the dead, can have newness of life. They are justified by his blood and they have for the forgiveness of sin. All sin. All sin. Past present future all sin is cast as far as the east is from the west king david wrote blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered it's also written blessed is the man to whom the lord will not impute sin hell cannot be ignored but it can be avoided not only avoided taken away from our thoughts taken away from we have hope Jesus died for you. You know, he died for you individually. He, he died for you independently of anybody else. Put your name there. Whatever you, what, put your name there. If you were the only person in the world, Jesus would have put himself on that cross to save you from the penalty of hell that was not created for you. It wasn't created for you, beloved. It was created for the devil and his angels. But man is fallen and we know that by our own natures and we need a saviour. We can't save ourselves. We can't save ourselves. And there is a humility of heart that once you recognise this, once you see the truth of this, and you bend your knee before a holy God and all you say is thank you for the salvation, for what you have done for me, you have a new life. You have a new life. Jesus didn't die to make bad men good. He died to give dead men life. That's why he died. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the message, dear Lord, deals with a topic so difficult and so frightening, and yet we know, dear Lord, that you and you alone have keys of heaven and eternal life we know dear father that you have come to give dead men life and i ask and pray dear lord that you have worked to work within this congregation this morning a topic dear lord an issue dear father that dear lord i grieve preaching on and yet dear father it needs to be taught simple as the scriptures teach it be with those dear lord who have heard those online those dear lord within this congregation And let it impact our lives that we may be changed forever and that we may have a burden for the lost. I pray, dear Lord, for your hand upon our lives. Bless us in the time of fellowship that we would spend together. And also, dear Lord, that you would work within these hearts. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.